Our good and our holy God, we stand in this room today because Jesus Christ is Lord. We gather in this room because, because you are the author of life. And you are the victor over death, the grave, sin, shame, and the adversary. Today we worship because of your amazing and abundant grace. God, we, we lift our songs today. We say our hallelujahs. We pray our prayers. And we listen for your voice. God, we're hungry for life. We're hungry for you. We try so many alternatives. We taste all kind of fruit. But you alone are the one that satisfies. You alone are the one that gives life. God, we open your word together, and we ask you, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy God, we pray that you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word as a seed planted in good soil. We pray that you give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will, Lord, we pray that you make our hands strong and our work in this world would be as your own. And Lord, we pray that a word of testimony and hope, life, gospel would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together saying amen and amen and alleluia, alleluia to the Lamb of God. Please be seated. Do you ever get a song just stuck in your head? Let me see your hands. I mean, you just can't get it out. Do you ever get an idea or a thought or a phrase that just rattles around in that bone on the top of your neck? I mean, it might be something sublime and deep and, and important, or it may be something as silly as a commercial. Uh, from time to time, I recall that commercial from the 80s, Where's the Beef? Uh, and I just go around all day long saying, Where's the Beef? Uh, as I was thinking about this sermon today, and I, as I was thinking about these bells, I mean, the first, the first Easter I preached here, I really had to work on getting used to the bells. But I have grown so fond of the bells. Uh, and, and as I was thinking about Easter and these bells, I had a thought in my mind and a song that I just couldn't get out of my head. And if you're cursed like me, and, and many of you are, you'll understand that, that difficulty. A couple, couple Wednesday nights ago, one of our, our children was sitting in a high chair in the fellowship hall, and she was just dancing. And I, and I leaned over and I said, do you have a song in your head? And she looked up and she said, I do. I said, I understand your challenge. I understand your challenge. Well, the idea and the, and the song that, that I want to share with you this morning, the first one is, is just the idea, th that old poem, John Donne's poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Some of you memorized that back in school. I, I did at one, one point back in the day, but now I have to depend on reading. You remember these words, No man is an island entire of itself. 
Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The words of this poem, this poem that rattled around in my brain thinking about this bell has significance for this morning. For indeed, like Dunn, we are all a clod of the continent. We are all part of the main and the bell will toll for us. We share one commonality and that's we all are facing the end of our lives. And we run from that and we live in a culture that denies that on every turn. But today on this Easter morning, we need to be reminded of this central fact of life. uh, That there is a a moment, a punctiliar moment, a a day, an, an appointed hour where we, our clod, goes into the sea. So today as we ring the bells, we should consider the funeral bell. And the fact that life, life on this earth as we know it, comes to an end. If there is any hope in Easter, and oh my friends there is, it speaks to this. The second thing uh, that I thought about, I've been singing, are the lyrics to Bob Dylan's song, Ring Them Bells. Some of you may, may think that I have fallen from grace at this point, but I assure you I have, uh, I have not. Ring Them Bells is a, is a great anthem. I, I challenge you to go find it and, and listen to it. it. It was one of the first songs Bob Dylan wrote after, after he recorded three gospel albums. He returned to a more secular uh, music at the time, but, but the song is rich in biblical imagery. It's, it's rich in meaning. It's a song not of the funeral, but of the revival. It's a song of the call back to life, a sacred life with God. The first line goes like this. Ring them bells, ye heathen from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuaries across the valleys and streams. For they're deep and they're wide and the world's on its side. And time is running backward. Time is running backward. The the world is running away from God. And if that wasn't enough, the next line will clinch it. He says, and so is the bride. The people of God who should know better are running away uh, from the fountain of life. They're, they're running away. Time is, is running backward. He said, ring them bells. The second line, ring them bells, St. Peter, where the four winds blow. Ring them bells with an iron hand so the people will know, oh, it's rush hour now on the wheel and the plow, and the sun is going down upon the sacred cow. Life on this earth on this globe is coming to a moment, a reckoning moment. And in this season, in this time, as we consider all about life and what it means in its richness and its fullness, we need to hear again the bells ring, the bells of life, the bells of invitation, the bells of hope, the bells of opportunity, the bells of come to God, the bells that St. Peter rang with an iron hand. The apostolic word that Jesus Christ is alive. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He is not dead. He is risen. 
And because of that, we can live too. And so today, all around the world, the church gathers, and the church gathers to ring with an iron hand the bell of St. Peter. And I stand in this pulpit today for just a few moments to ring the bell of St. Peter to invite us to life. Well, my hands aren't made of iron, and clearly my feet are made of clay. I don't feel very apostolic, but I've been invited into the apostolic task, the great foolishness of God that we call preaching. I don't feel like an iron hand Peter at all. I feel like a grackle bird I met recently at a taco stand. This grackle bird only had one foot. It was a one-footed grackle bird. It's bad to be a grackle bird. It's tough to be a grackle bird with one foot. But it gave this grackle bird a distinct advantage. It would hop around close to that taco stand. And because of its proximity to the earth, it was the quickest one to find the discarded tortillas left by college students and fumbling fingers like my own. And that little grackle bird would just hop all around picking up those tortillas. And as soon as he would find a little stash, all the other grackle birds would gather. All the strong grackle birds would gather. And they would eat the bread. Today, we live in the kind of world because of the resurrection of Jesus that one-footed grackle birds get to ring the bell of St. Peter with an iron hand. I don't know a lot. And I hop around a lot. But with sincerity of heart, I can say I know where to find the bread. So grackle birds gather around. Gather around and let's eat. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits from those who are asleep. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ affords fruits after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Time is setting. The sun is sinking low. And when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. The Apostle Paul wrote this to a church they were concerned about the realities of life and death and resurrection and hope. Some have been mumbling that maybe, maybe the resurrection had already occurred in some sense. And Paul wrote to them, 
to give them the heart of the matter, to talk about Jesus and his resurrection and what that means for people, people like us. He painted a picture in these sentences about the Christ, the Christ who came, the Christ who lived, the Christ who was crucified and raised, the Christ who promised to come again, the Christ of the church. He wrote about this Christ. This Christ is the one that was with us and instead of us and for us. And for just a few moments, I want to linger over these ideas to visit with this resurrected Christ, to ask ourselves why, and to hear the answer. The first thing we need to understand is that Christ Jesus the Lord was a Christ that was with us. Verse 20, he was spoken of as the first fruits of those who have died. Now this is an amazing sentence. This is an amazing reality. And it has many implications. But one of the plainest and most direct is that he was one of us. He was a clod off the continent. That's wild and that's scandalous and it's wonderful in so many ways. Perhaps some of the most scandalous words in all of the Gospels were written by Luke when Luke said he breathed his last. And Jesus knew it was coming. Over and over again in the Gospels, at least three times in the Gospel of Luke, he spoke of his impending crucifixion, resurrection, his suffering, and his victory. And they didn't get it, and we wouldn't have got it. For Jesus, death was personal. He looked it directly in the eyes, and he marched toward it soberly. He understood. Prophets and priests and poets, from Heidegger to Tolstoy, they tell us that for us to have a real life, to us to be fully alive, for the fabric of our life to shine, that we must come to the place where we understand the personal nature of our death. To quit avoiding it. To quit thinking it's something that befalls others. To quit turning it into a cartoon the way we are entertained by it. But to face it. And Jesus faced it. And one day on a hill outside of a holy city, he cried, it is finished. And he died. Paul writes of this dead Messiah. He became the first fruits of those who have died. Surely Paul had in mind the religious aspects of the first fruit offering where you take your first and your best and you offer it before the bountiful provider. Certainly that was somewhere in his head. But the emphasis... The emphasis wasn't on the ritual aspect of it. As beautiful as that is, the emphasis was on the promise. The emphasis was on the guarantee. 
he was saying that, that Jesus, the one that died, became a bright green shoot of life that broke through the crusty earth. A bright green shoot of life that said all that looks dead has been penetrated by this humble and beautiful picture of life, this one tender shoot. My grandfather, when, when I was a, a young pastor, I, I was 22 years of age. I wanted to connect with the men in, in, our, in our little church, and all of them were gardeners. And he came down to help me, help me learn how to plant a garden so I could take my, my blighted tomato leaves into Sunday school and say, what's wrong with that? And have some old guy say, oh, just use some seven dust. That'll fix it. It'll be all right. I wanted to be able to talk to the old guys about blight and seven dust and, so that I could talk to them about life and Christ and all of those things. And to hear what they had to say about all those kind of things. Because I, I acted like their teacher, but they were teaching me. And, and so my grandfather, he came down and taught me how to garden. And he said, all my life I've planted a garden on Good Friday. All my life I've planted a garden on Good Friday. And that it's still a good rule of thumb. And in that moment with my granddad, you could hear those words of Jesus. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Paul said that Jesus, the one that died, he was the first fruits of those that died. He's a tender shoot of life. And that tender shoot of life is the promise of harvest. He was one of us. And he was the pioneer. And he was life. And in him is life. Friends, we, we serve a God that gets it. If you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are one of his, you pray to a God that understands. Your frailty, your temptation, your trials, your sufferings, your hurts, your fears, your ecstasy. You, under, you have a God that gets it. Gets it way down deep. All the way to the point of breathing his last. And if you want to experience life as God has ordered life, you have to experience through the one that knows. And he's the only one that knows. Because he is God with us. The first fruits from the dead. The promise of that which is coming in God. Alleluia. Alleluia to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He's also Christ in, instead of us. Get this. Verses 21 to 24, Paul uses this language of Adam and Christ. This is, this is the earliest time he uses it. He has a prolonged argument in the book of Romans about this where he uses this image of, of Adam and Christ. He goes back to that wonderful, fantastic creation narrative in the, in the early portions of Genesis about God and, and God's creational intent for people. About how God, God gave us life, not because God was needy and, and, and was lonely and needed somebody to give him a high five and make him feel good about himself. God, friends, God's fine without us. But you go back to those early stories and God, out of a sense of love and ecstasy, gave life. Gave life to, to breathing human beings. 
And the creation stories give this, this great picture of God's shalom, God's order of things. Where, where faith was pure and there was a relationship with God. Where they had meaningful work to do and it was rightly ordered as, as they were giving names to the animals, as they were tilling in the land. Where relationships were right as, as people walked in, in relationship. Uh, where there was a sanctified sense of, of beauty and fun because he gave trees that were simply beautiful for the eyes. This is the story of what God would have life in absolute harmony where all things are wrapped up in the all in all and it's, and it's whole and it's right. But as the story goes, Adam looked at this bountiful creator and said, no, I'll have it my way. And I'll do it, do it my way. And this rebel creature in this moment experiences a brokenness in his experience. And it fouls up everything. It fouls up the relationship between the people, the relationship between God, between the earth. It fouls up every single last thing. This one created in the image of God, the icon of God is, is cracked. Because of this rebellion. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, uh, when he wrote that great, great mythological tale, Chronicles of Narnia, referred to humans as the, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. It's like that this great old story is our story. Years ago, the crusty Carlisle Marnie was teaching a class, and he had this extremely conservative student in the class that wanted to get him in trouble, and he said, Dr. Marnie, where was the Garden of Eden? Very accusatory fashion. He said, Tennessee. <laughs> he said, it was there when I was a child that I stole from my mother's purse. And in shame, I hid from her. And I heard her walking down the hall saying, Carlisle, where are you? And what have you done? This story is our story. We indeed are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And our life is not ordered correctly. And we're not people in need of repair. We're rebels, Lewis said, that need to put down our arms. Put down our arms. And Paul teaches us that this Christ was a Christ that entered into this world to be a Christ instead of us. In Adam, there was death. In Christ, there's the opportunity and the invitation to life because this Jesus, born of a woman, lived. And he lived in total dependence and in obedience to God. He lived faithfully and he lived fully and he lived sacrificially and he lived lovingly. He lived all the way until he died. And he died graveyard dead, Scripture says, for our redemption, for our freedom, for our life. And God raised him from the grave, hallelujah, to the Lamb of God. And he did that to make a path for us that we might find life in and through him. This great recapitulation creates in the world an opportunity for an all new type of living. He became the prototype of a new humanity. 
and we're called to life in him where we turn from our own selfishness and our sinfulness where we receive grace from his heart and his hand where where we're buried underneath the waters of baptism to symbolize this and where we're snatched out dripping wet and breathing in air to show that we are alive not because of our own merit or achievement but because of his grace Walter Brueggemann says that we have an odd baptismal identity, all of us who know, who know and love the Lord. And we can have this life in Him because He was the God who lived instead of us, making a path and a way for us all to be alive. All right. If we're scribbling things down, here's the last one. He's also the God that is for us. It gets a little tough in verse 25 to 28 because you begin to realize that there's a fight that's been going on. There have been principalities and powers. There have been, there have been foreign agents pressing against the purposes and the plans of God in this earth. In these verses of Scripture, Jesus is spoken of as the abolisher of the powers. The one that has come as the Christus victor, the one that has come to win a victory over the enemies of God. And who, what are those enemies? What powers? Well, there's the power of Satan, the adversary. In, in 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the Satan is called the tempter. The one that would call us away from the purposes and plans of God in our life. The one who would invite us the one who would invite us to live on our own terms and not the terms of our bountiful creator and redeemer. The one who would call us to shortcuts and easy ways and quick fixes. The one who would call us to idols. Idols in every age. The one who would whisper in our ears and join the voices of those who flatter us. The one that would shame us Shame is to the point where we quit. We give up. This says that Easter, Easter inaugurates the abolishment of the adversary. One day, all of those voices will be silenced. And Easter is a down payment on that. He also came to abolish the work of sin. You say, Matt, it's just bad stuff we do. Maybe sin's outdated. Maybe there isn't anything that's really bad. Maybe it's just a, a lack of manners. Fleming Rutledge, the great writer, said that, that, that sins are those things that we do that are against the heart and the purpose and the plans of God or fail to do that he would have us to do. And sin, sin is a foreign agent that has come against us. She said in relation to sin, we're both culpable and captive. And Christ, Christ has come to break the power of sin in our lives. He has come as a thundering victor. And one day, we will experience God without the rival of sin in our lives. And it will be heaven. It will be glorious. And now, we live in a time of inauguration and down payment and promise and hope. He has come to be the victor over sin. And the last enemy, Paul said, the last enemy, the final enemy is death itself. 
I'm afraid we have domesticated death. We've broken it like a wild animal and made it a pet. But death will always be a wild animal and a vicious one and an enemy till the end. Jason Isbell said the best line he'd ever, he's ever written and the most controversial was from what is one of the toughest songs in the, the millennium, Elephant. In that line he says, no one dies with dignity. Now understand this. Understand this. There's a way to die and a way not to die, friends. And Christ has made the way. But in, in the moment of death, death is always an enemy. This is not God's heart for us. God is not the author of death. Death is the enemy. The enemy. And the resurrection of Jesus proclaims boldly and loudly that that enemy is a defeated foe. And one day, by God, death will die forever. And we live in a season where death, by little at a time, as his people, are welcomed home. Christ is the God for us. And he reigns until all of these enemies are handed over to the Father and all will be in all. In the words of David Garland, there will be an unchallenged reign of God alone. Our faith is rooted in memory, but it lives in hope. This is Easter hope. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, the first thing we need to make sure that we have received the reign of the resurrected Messiah in our life. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and receiving it like a child, receiving the reign of God in our life. He spoke in this text, Paul did, of those who are in Christ. There's no mention in this text of those who are, are not, and that wasn't the focus of his writing that's dealt with in other passages of Scripture. His focus here was those who are in Christ, and that's our focus in this hour. Do you know him? By grace, through faith, do you know him? Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you, that being your hope of glory? Is the victor of Easter the victor in your life? I don't mean have you signed some card, have you been wet in a church. I don't, I don't mean did you go to Bible school or I, I, was your grandparent a pastor? I, it's not the question. Not are you in church or out of church, but are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? If you can answer that affirmatively, then this second invitation is for us. If you can't, today is a day. Today is a day. The second question for those of us who are in Christ is, is will you cry out for this kingdom to break into our present reality? Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We wrestle the powers 
We should never for a moment collude with them. And many times we do. Many times we drop our weapons and we enter into the battle against our Messiah and not on his side. Many times we do this. Will we cry out, your kingdom come, your will be done, your will be done right here in this earth. In every generation, there are little miracles, there are little signposts pointing to the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Easter Day in 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail in Birmingham. He was in prison. They decided that they would have a march, a march from the New Pilgrim Baptist Church to the prison where King was being held. Easter Sunday, they gathered at the New Pilgrim Church dressed in their Sunday best, a colorful throng of people, some wearing big hats, like one or two of the hats we see in the balcony at least today. And in their Easter best, they gathered at this church, 5,000 of them gathered outside of this church. They'd spent the morning singing. They'd spent the morning talking about the aliveness of God. They spent the morning saying, He is risen! He is risen indeed! And over and over again, they spent the morning shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah to the Lamb. And they marched. They marched to the jail. Birmingham, it's a big-sized town, but it's not so big that 5,000 people don't cause a little bit of an uproar. And word spread. And as they marched, the counterforces gathered. In between the church and the jail, the marchers who were singing were confronted by fire engines with hoses Policeman with German shepherds and Bull Connor with his horn. Bull Connor went out and met the crowd and shouted through his horn, Turn this crowd around. Andy Young turned to the crowd and they all knelt on the ground and they began to pray. Reverend Billups, one of the old ministers there, after they prayed for a while, stood up. He gathered oxygen in his lungs and he shouted as loud as he could so that all could hear. God is on our side. Get up. March. 5,000 men and women and children stood up and they began to march. They began to march towards the dogs and the hoses and the power of the state, they began to march. And as their feet pounded out the rhythm, they sang, I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me. On this life's journey, I want Jesus to walk with me. If I was a betting man, I would say 5,000 people thought that they were about to be confronted with the fierceness of the mob. The most unbelievable thing happened. 
as they got to the line of firemen and policemen and dogs, the dogs quit barking. And the line of men parted. And 5,000 people passed through. An elderly woman shouted, Great God Almighty has parted the sea once more. And they kept walking. 5,000 people kept walking. And Andy Young, he says, as he remembers back on that day, he remembers one of the firemen. He says, as he passed his firemen, his firemen had tears streaming down his face. And he dropped his hose in the dust as they passed by singing of Jesus. Now there's an awful lot in this story, but the part of it that I can't shake, the tears of the firemen. I think I probably know the firemen. I probably literally know some of his cousins. Here's a guy, probably that same morning, put on his blue-collar Sunday best and showed up somewhere and sang about the same Jesus. Had a little lunch with his family and said, I got to go to work. For him, working was colluding with the powers. And he showed up on that street and he saw Jesus alive and not dead. And his tears, his tears were a testimony to the power of the resurrected one. And he dropped his weapon in the earth. A rebel bowing at the feet of his Savior. What will we do with the God of the Exodus and the God of Easter? Some of you today need to fall to your knees and humble yourself before Him. Some of you need to hear the thundering sound, Get up and march! And quite a few of us, quite a few of us rebels, need to lay our sabers down. He is alive. And it still matters. What will you do with this news? God, as we sing, draw us to yourself. Heal our backsliding. Heal our arrogance. Break us and mend us. And give us life, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Friends, please stand. We're going to sing. Today is a day for you to profess your faith in Christ. We invite you to come. If you simply need for us to pray with you, we invite you to come for the glory of God and for your good. David?